Will you turn with me in your Bibles now to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll be considering today verses 12 through 18, the final paragraph of this first chapter of Ecclesiastes. It's found on page 478 in your pew Bible, if you're using one of those. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 to 18. I would also like you to uh, have a finger in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, because we'll be turning to that afterwards. Luke 13, verses 10 to 13. But we begin with verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 1. This is the word of the Lord through Solomon, that son of David who was king in Jerusalem. So let us hear the word of God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And now we turn to the Gospel of Luke, the 13th chapter, beginning at verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, it says, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed of your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the knowledge of your word that tells us that you are able to strengthen what no man is able to straighten, that you are able to do what no man is able to do. And so we thank you for the promises of your word and for the work of your Spirit enabling us, who are so slow to believe, enabling us to believe and to rest in the work that you have done. Grant these things, we pray, and open our eyes and our ears to your word as it's preached to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 
I'd like you to think with me for a moment. I want you to just sit back and reflect. Okay? And I want you to consider the question whether you have ever wished that you could go back in time to a particular moment, one particular moment, and either undo or unspeak something that you said or did in that one moment. Something that you either said or did that had tremendous and maybe lifelong repercussions that you've regretted ever since. Maybe it was something that you said or did that ended a friendship or ended some other relationship that was precious to you. Something you said or did that disrupted someone's trust in you or their peace of mind or even their life. Back when I was teaching my teenage children how to drive many, many years ago, I used to harp continually on this theme, and I hope you parents do the same thing with your children when it's their turn to take the wheel of the family car. I want you to impress upon them the fact that one single, solitary microsecond of inattention to what you're doing as a driver, that's all it takes to drastically change either your life or the life of someone else. Forever. And cry as hard as you might afterwards. There's no going back to that one moment to undo it. The damage is done. Creatures of time, like ourselves have to reckon every day with the hard, non-negotiable fact that, for us, time moves in only one direction. Even the artificial backward movement from daylight savings to standard time, which is coming up here in just another couple of weeks, it's only one hour that we fall back. And, of course, that mere change in the clock never had the power to undo or unsay something foolish that we did or said in that previous hour. There's no redo. There's no second chance to get things right the first time. Sinners move only forward in history, and we leave tons and tons of wreckage behind as we go, typically. There's the wreckage of inborn sin, and then that is combined with the wreckage of many bad decisions that we make along the way. There's plenty of grist always for the mill of repentance. Plenty of grist for the mill of humility. Now the canvas on which Solomon began painting this extended picture of our natural life, an earthbound life lived without reference to the living God, but merely lived under the sun, the canvas itself is pretty bleak, isn't it? We saw this last week. We live our lives in this rather sorry world of dreary, unending, cyclical sameness. 
generation after generation, day after day, the sun rises and it sets, rises and sets, rises and sets. The wind blows where it will, without any particular purpose in mind. All the rivers run to the sea, and the sea is never full. Those are the things that Solomon noted, and that we note, too. And the ultimate purpose for all these relentless cycles of life that Solomon observed, these cycles of life in this world, the ultimate purpose of them can't be found in this world. The purpose of it all can't be determined from the data given in nature. And so life under the sun becomes, for the average sinner, just a matter of drawing the next breath, taking the next step, popping the next pill, earning the next dollar. And all of that ends in the grave. And then our children get to go through the same thing. And then their children after them. Our passage today paints all human activity against the background of this dreary, gray canvas of reality lived under the sun. I, Koheleth, which is the Hebrew for preacher, or better, the convener, as we saw last week. Solomon was the one who convened the great assembly for the dedication of the temple. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, he first pointed this fact out to us in the opening lines of the book, didn't he? But here in verse 12, we learn not only that he is king, but that he's been king. That is, he's been king for a while now. So this isn't some callow youth privileged to wear the Davidic crown for the very first time in his life. This isn't some teenager who's discovering the world for the very first time. Solomon's been at this for a while. In fact, as we learn later on in the book, he's an old man by now. Solomon is an old man. He's been around the block a few times, and not only did Solomon set his earliest personal priorities as king around the gaining of wisdom, he did that search for wisdom with all the resources of the throne behind it. All the resources of the throne at his disposal. And so as king, he's been able to afford doing the research necessary to come to the conclusions that he came to. Solomon never had to cut corners in his research. Never had to cut corners to fit a budget. Without the providential constraints placed upon the average man in the street, King Solomon observes carefully. He penetrates deeply. He analyzes carefully, he explores widely, he learns easily, and he retains comprehensively. Which means that by this late point in Solomon's life, he has become virtually 
a walking, talking encyclopedia of knowledge on every topic down to the hyssop that grows on the wall, as we saw last week in 1 Kings chapter 6, I believe it was. Correction, 1 Kings 4. He has become the recognized authority of his age, the recognized authority on virtually any subject. Verse 13, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. He's seen it all. He's explored it all. He's set his mind to work on it. And what's his conclusion? What is Solomon's conclusion? Has he come up with the one grand all-encompassing mathematical formula to explain all the universe and its movements. There are people, I understand, who are actually working on a formula that explains everything. But no, Solomon didn't come to that. In all of his searching, Solomon came to this. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. It's a grievous task. That's not his final word, of course. It's not the full story of his inquiry. He gets to that very late in the book. In fact, the last couple of verses in chapter 12. But what he says here is true as far as it goes, isn't it? The deeper you look into any subject, a subject that piques your interest, a subject that excites you. The deeper you penetrate into it, often the clearer its limitations become. Often the deeper you look, the less pleasing it looks. And Western culture is going through that right now, aren't we? As we discover all the limitations and drawbacks of this so-called green energy, it's pretty intriguing to think of windmills producing all this free power. It's pretty intriguing and exciting until a polar vortex comes along and simply shuts them all down with ice at the worst possible moment. And electric cars, what a great idea they are. Until you discover all the fossil fuel needed to generate the electricity needed to recharge them. The deeper you probe into things, the more problems you find, the more it all seems to be striving after wind. And sadly, it's very much the same on points closer to home. It's one of the reasons that after the honeymoon, marriage typically doesn't feel quite the same way the engagement did. Because now that you're married, you've had the opportunity to look a little deeper into one another's life and character. And you have come to discover more of what was already there, but you didn't see before. You discover that the man or woman of your dreams isn't only 
gorgeous, isn't only charming, isn't only fun to be with, she's also a sinner. She's a sinner. They've got some bad habits. They've got a few annoying little quirks. And if you're wise, as you learn these things, it begins to sink in that your life's work as a husband or a wife isn't just to be happy, certainly. Your life's work as a husband or a wife is to complete one another, to make up the genuine deficits in the life and character of this person that you now live with. Not everyone finds that easy to do. Solomon had a thousand women in his life. Think about that. 700 wives, 300 concubines, most of them hardened pagans, many mere political pawns, few if any possessed of the gentle and quiet spirit that's so precious in the sight of God and precious in the sight of a believing husband. Solomon knew clearly and felt keenly the things whereof he wrote in verse 18. In much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. But I want to focus your attention today on verse 15 in particular. Verse 15. Here we have another candid observation of a wise and careful man. The observation, in fact, of a craftsman who demands the right materials to work with. Don't bring me inferior stuff, says the craftsman, the artist. Don't bring me inferior materials. Only the best will do, and only the full measure of it. Remember, Solomon is the man who oversaw the building of God's glorious temple in Jerusalem. He's the man who made sure that every stone of the temple, every timber of the temple, was cut to specification off-site so as to fit precisely together when they were assembled on Mount Zion. All this pre-planning so that the noise of hammer and saw wouldn't be heard in the house of God and so disturb the tranquility that befits that place. No one heard anybody hammering nails or cutting wood where the temple stood. It was all done ahead of time. Back in those early days of the building of the temple, Solomon had been a man of precision. He'd been a man of the highest standards, especially touching the matter of God's worship. To know this living and true God and actually to meet him in worship, this is the highest and greatest work ever to be undertaken by men under the sun. And so at this point I should probably ask, is this, what you are doing right here, right now, is this the high point of your week?
Is the worship of the living and true God the focal point of your life? He's spoken very clearly on the matter. And what he says leads one to believe that meeting with God requires some very special thought and care. It requires your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It requires personal consecration to the task because this one day of rest and fellowship with God, this one day puts the content of all the other six into perspective. It answers a lot of these problems that Solomon poses in this book. Meeting with God explains everything in due time. But Solomon discovered a terrible thing about the human condition. Not only do men by nature lack a sense of purpose in life, as we saw in the opening verses of this book, we also lack power. We lack purpose and we lack power. Power to build something beautiful for God during these few short years that he's given us to live under the sun. Power to effect change. Power to break out of these desperate, frantic little circles of life lived under the sun. We lack power to achieve the ends for which God first created us when he first created humanity upright. Because by nature, all the children of fallen Adam are crooked. That's what we are by nature. Not upright as our first parents were. We are crooked. Nails are meant to be driven. But have you ever tried to drive a crooked nail? And if nails have a distinct purpose, humanity has a purpose too which is to glorify and enjoy God forever. The problem is, we're crooked. We don't meet the craftsman's specifications. We can't do what we were first designed to do. But worse than that, here we learn that what is crooked cannot be straightened. Cannot. We sinners lack the pristine righteousness required to meet with the infinitely holy God. We can't fix this problem ourselves. And the truth of the matter is, the full truth of the matter is that we can't even fully determine the scope of the problem. Because what is lacking in us is beyond our power even to comprehend. It cannot be counted, cannot be measured. Such is the great unbridgeable gulf standing today between this fallen earth and the glories of heaven. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon here does humanity, all of humanity, 
the great kindness of showing us the world not as we'd like it to be, but as it is. He's holding up a mirror and showing us ourselves, not as we like to think of ourselves, but as we are. Some of you I know are familiar with William Ernest Henley's 19th century poem, Invictus. That poem is a literary shaking of the author's fist in the face of God, and it ends with the lines, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the way the poet saw things. Well, Captain Henley went down with his ship on July 11th, 1903, when at the age of only 53, he died and met God for the very first time. The living and true God, who is to every unrepentant sinner a consuming fire. The plain fact is that we're not in total control of our own circumstances, are we? Even at the very beginning, as mere creatures, our first parents had their creaturely limits, their very reasonable boundaries. Adam tried to exceed those boundaries, which rendered all his children not upright, as he once was, but crooked. as he in that instant of disobedience became himself crooked. We're sinners in the hand of an angry God. That's what we are. Sinners in the hand of an offended God. And today we're told that what is crooked cannot be straightened. Which leaves us without hope if our only hope lay in this dreary world where every road you take only takes you in circles. If our hope lay in this world only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Thanks be to God then for his boundless compassion, his compassion, shown in the fullness of time to hopeless sinners like us. Sinners who meet regularly for worship in places just like this. Let me explain. There came a day in history There came a day in history when the Son of God left his eternal throne of glory and righteousness and remaining the undiminished God that he is became also man. God incarnate in the womb of Mary, a Jewish girl of Nazareth. God became man. And on that day, that unbridgeable gulf of which I just spoke, that unbridgeable gulf was bridged. But it wasn't bridged from our end. We did nothing. There was nothing we could do. What is crooked cannot be straightened. Even if we fully understood the extent of the trouble we were in. But we didn't even understand that. 
and too many people today still don't know the extent of the trouble they're in trying to live their lives under the sun they don't understand the danger they're in they live in a fantasy world of self-improvement they live in Henley's world thinking themselves in charge of things the masters of their own fates captains of their own souls But for those who pay attention to the written word of God, it's been clear for ages that here in this lost world under the sun, what is crooked cannot be straightened. That baby conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary was Jesus. He was given the name Jesus because it is he who will save his people from their sins. That baby grew to manhood, and you already know about the rest of his ministry. But here in this 13th chapter of Luke's Gospel, we discover a little incident that is sometimes uh, forgotten or overlooked, a little incident that sheds some encouraging light on today's rather gloomy text from Ecclesiastes seems that Jesus, making his way toward Jerusalem and the cross, his one last trip to Jerusalem, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues along the way during his Perean ministry, as it's been called. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Now, she had come to the synagogue that day to worship. To worship God, that's all. It was her habit as a godly woman on the Sabbath day to assemble with all the rest of God's people locally and worship. She wasn't there that day in the synagogue to ask favors of anyone. She wasn't there in the synagogue that day to be healed. As far as she knew, healing was out of the question because 18 years is a very, very long time. And over the course of time, of course, you know this, over the course of time you just learn to play the hand you're dealt. You adapt to the disability. You adapt to the situation. We don't know how old she was. It's very possible if she was a young woman that she'd been bent over double with contractors all her life. She didn't come to worship that day to be healed. In the synagogue, certainly everyone who'd been paying attention to the readings knew, they knew that what is crooked cannot be straightened. And if you are born with contractures, you're going to live your life with contractures. You're going to be bent over double all your life if that's the way you were born. And here we have someone who is literally a very crooked woman. She is bent over double. But listen, when Jesus saw her, 
There's the bridging, not from our side, but from his side. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Ours is a very sorry, sorry world that's beset by disappointment and loss and heartache and contractures and disabilities of all kinds. And what Solomon wrote is absolutely true as far as his broad experience went. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Here in a typical life lived under the sun, what is crooked cannot be straightened. Cannot. And also, here under the sun, what is leprous cannot be cleansed. And the deaf do not hear, and the blind do not see, and the dead do not live again. And then in the fullness of time and according to promise, the Son of Righteousness arose with healing in his wings, didn't he? God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. He redeems us. He sets captives free. He does. Dear ones, as this world continues to unravel day by day, let's bear these things in mind, that we have no power to straighten ourselves out. If we're to entertain any reasonable hope, either in this world or that which is to come, any reasonable hope, it lies not in fallen men. It rests in Jesus Christ alone, to whom was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Your needs are great. My needs are great. Let us look to Jesus. Amen.